You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. This episode is about what happens when the government decides your private property isn't, well, private. The case we're talking about today is about property rights, eminent domain, something called the takings clause, and a bad precedent known as Williamson County. What does it mean for the government to take your property? Is it legal? What can you do about it if it happens? And why would a religious liberty firm file a brief in a property case? The short answer is because religious liberty is closely connected to other foundational rights, including the right to private property. The long answer is a little more complicated, and it gives a, frankly, kind of head-spinning look at how our country's courts work. Let's get started. We talk about the First Amendment all the time around here, but today we're talking about the Fifth Amendment. More specifically, we're talking about the very last line of the Fifth Amendment. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, my gut reaction to that is, well, how about private property should never be taken for public use, period. But that's not really practicable in a functioning country. And to explain that, let's start with a concept in the law called eminent domain. Eminent domain goes way back, historically. To help us out, we talked to David Bremer, senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation, PLF. The concept of eminent domain is the concept that the sovereign originally the king and now in our democracy, the the state has the right and power to take private property for public use as long as it pays for it. So the example for eminent domain, the quintessential example is a road across your property. The government wants to build a road. Um, There's nothing you can do as a property owner to stop the government from taking your property, but the government has its own condition and that's that it must pay for it. So despite my gut reaction, eminent domain actually makes sense. Because there are certain things that we consent as a, a group of people, we cede certain powers to the, to the government by consent to do things for our common good. And one of those powers is the right and the power to do public improvements that benefit everybody with the necessity of taking private property when, there's, when it's needed to accomplish a road, a bridge, a park, because otherwise one person could hold out and say, no, I don't want to sell for anything. I don't care how much, if if there's a voluntary system, you could stop necessary improvements. So it comes from the the original monarchy system where the king could take your property in England and and elsewhere and and use it for something, but they had to pay for it. Um, So there's a condition on that power, but that power is part of what we've implicitly consented to by creating a government in the first place. In theory then, Eminent domain is a strong but reasonable power for a government to wield. In practice, it's a power that's fairly easy for a government to abuse. The limit put on the government is that it has to provide just compensation when it takes private property for public use. But where it gets kind of loose is in the definition of public use and in what counts as a taking. What's happened is governments have uh, started to take private property for other reasons. That's Joe Davis, counsel at Beckett. Like taking it from one private person and then giving it to 
another private developer just to uh, do something with it that's going to create more tax value for the government. So somebody's house uh, might might only be worth so much in property taxes to the government, but if somebody's going to develop it into a shopping center or something like that, uh, they pay a lot more property taxes. So here you have uh, financial incentives playing a very a negative role in what the government is doing with its takings power, with the eminent domain power. And then you, you also have governments that are, that are enacting laws that uh, take away people's property rights, but they don't say we're exercising our eminent domain power. They just uh, enact these laws and they're, they're takings in effect, but it's the government trying to get out of paying compensation when it affects people's property rights. David Bremer and his firm are the ones who ended up taking the case we're discussing today, Nick v. Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. They took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Beckett filed a friend of the court brief in the case. We'll get to the details of that case in just a moment. Joe pointed out that sometimes the government takes private property, in effect, without calling it a taking. Sometimes they're not turning a space into anything in particular, but they just want to keep it open. But what's controversial is in this situation where they zone you open space. And because they want to preserve, conserve or preserve an open space area that's been built out. And they say, ah, we don't want any more building. We're just going to zone you open space. So you, property owner that owned this last chunk of land, like I have five acres, you can't build anything because it's zoned open space. It's residential over there, whatever there. But we want some open space. So you are going to you're going to bear that burden for the public. That public wants some open area so that it can, you know, scenic and and it doesn't say it's taking your property. It just does that. And then you have to sue and prove that it's a taking. So that that's the part of the abuse that's more subtle is when the government takes your property without explicitly taking it. So the Constitution protects you by guaranteeing your right to compensation when they take your property. But the trick is, what does that word take mean? So in the example of a road, pretty obvious they're taking something. It was yours and now they're there. That's been, t- okay, but in my other example of open space, is that a taking? They didn't physically come and government agents and government trucks and, and confiscate that property. It's still yours. You still have title to it, but you can't do anything with it. Is that a taking? Well, is it? How do you establish that the government took your land if it hasn't been turned over to someone or something else? It turns out to be really difficult, but one woman did it in Nick V. Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. Rosemary Nick, a woman in her 70s who lives on 90 acres of farmland in Pennsylvania. 90 acres of private property, which she's lived on for 50 years. And the government, the town, a small town there, passed an ordinance which said that government uh, inspectors or town inspectors have the right to go on any parcel of property in the township to look for the existence of cemeteries. And if they find what they think is a burial ground or a cemetery, then the public has access to it by regulation. Now, immediately when we say cemetery, we have this picture in our mind of what a cemetery is. And and let me just get to that a little bit. In Pennsylvania, backyard burials are, are permitted. They've never been outlawed. So in Pennsylvania, you can bury Grandpa Joe under the old oak tree legally, and people have done that. So there are small grave sites going back 200 years in Pennsylvania all over the place. Uh, and so a law like this, which was the first in the kind of the town, is pretty extraordinary to say that we're gonna give anybody from New Jersey or wherever, kids, the right to walk on your private property to an area where we think there's some old gravestones. 
Rose's property was fairly ordinary farmland. So we're talking about 90 acres of land, about 20 miles north of Scranton in Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a very quiet area, wooded. She's got her home on the land. There's another structure, another home she rents out, like a barn. She uh, leases out a lot of her land for pumpkins and for people to farm pumpkins and, and stuff like that. There's nothing unusual or extraordinary about it. The only thing that's, it's not extraordinary at all, but I guess it's to the town it was, is that someone in the town f- thought that there is a um, grave sites about 100 yards, I believe, maybe 300, I can't remember, I forgive me, but it was a good ways into her property that there was a grave site there and the town came and taped it off. Rewind. The government just abruptly came onto her property and taped off an area and said, this, it's a public site. A man in town claimed one of his relatives was there. And so I, the, the story is that he went to the town and um, complained about it. And so instead of them working this out so that he could go and look, they passed a law that allowed everyone to go and look. So you could drive over to Nick's property if you want and park your car, according to the town, on the road, enter her private property, walk over a watershed 300 yards, I think it's 300 yards, into her property to view these stones seven days a week. And if Nick stopped you, she'd be fined $500 for every every day she refused to allow the public to come in. You know, we're not talking old Indian cemetery or national battleground. We're just talking some random stones. And nobody knows if there, if there is even a, a site there. The idea that just anyone can come onto your property, not just a couple feet over the line, but some couple hundred yards in, that's pretty distressing. So this was one of those moments where the government was effectively taking someone's private property, but not calling it what it was. The government can say that you have to have the access on your property. It can do that, but it has to pay for it. It can't just put a, declare a trail on your property. And the city hadn't paid Rose. She didn't want to just let this go. On top of not really wanting her farm to be accessible to just anyone, anytime, she was worried about liability issues. See, the town ordinance generally required that the person who owned the property had to also maintain it. So that called into question, well, is she going to be liable for anything that now happens in that space, which is theoretically now open to a lot more foot traffic? It was a broad ordinance that really had more questions than answers. Rose knew she wanted to fight the government's actions. The government had passed the ordinance in 2012 and trespassed on her property in April 2013. And here's where the real issue came up. Before anything else, Rose had to establish that this was really a taking under the takings clause. To do that, you have to go to court. You have to bring a case and have a judge say, yes, this is a taking. Going to court is costly, both in time and money. So it's a big undertaking. And when it comes to this takings clause, there's another barrier. Which court do you go to? She went to state court. The state court said, we can't hear your case. She went to federal court. The federal court said, we can't hear your case. You should go on back to state court. Ping pong. She can't, she can't get anyone to tell her, is it or is it not a taking for you to pass a law saying the public has access to my private property seven days a week? Is that a taking or not? Well, we, we can't tell. You got to go to state court. State court says, well, we can't tell. It's not, it's not ripe. It's not ready. Go to federal court. Well, Williams County says you got to go to state court. 
Williamson County. I mentioned it at the beginning. Cases are built on other cases, and Williamson County was a Supreme Court case that set a really bad precedent for cases like Rose's. And in Williamson County, the court said there are a couple different factors that have to be present uh, when somebody is saying that the government has enacted some regulation that is in effect a taking. That gets Joe Davis again. So the Williamson County Court said, uh, first, there has to be a, a final decision by the government that we can evaluate. And second, the landowner has to have exhausted state remedies before bringing a claim for a taking. And, and that is sought compensation from the state in a lawsuit. So filed a state court lawsuit that says, uh, I need to be compensated for this taking that you've just done. Uh, And the idea here was to defer a little more to local authorities uh, on the concept that, well, land use decisions are sort of quintessentially local. And so the federal courts shouldn't get involved until uh, the state courts have had a bite at the apple. But it had some unintended consequences that, um, again, Williamson County said, before you can sue for a taking in federal court, you have to sue and seek compensation in state court. But it turns out that there's this other federal law that says that federal courts have to defer to the decisions of state courts. They have to give them full faith and credit. And so what would happen in practice is people would go sue in the state court, like Williamson County told them to. And if they lost and then they then tried to go to federal court, the federal court would kick the case out because it would have to defer to the decision of the state court. So what was happening is uh, they were being put in a catch-22. They were being told, in order to have a good federal takings claim, you have to sue in state court. But if you sue in state court, you lose your federal claim altogether. I did warn you that this was all kind of head spinning. It really is. David explained it this way. There's another rule that I'll call the, the no second bite at the apple rule. So when you file a lawsuit, you don't have a right to file another exactly the same lawsuit. Okay, you don't get a second bite at the apple. There, this is a common rule in law. You you bring all your claims the first time and you litigate them. If you lose, you lose. And the reason for this, you don't get to go back and file the same lawsuit again to see if you win again. A different judge, right? And the reason is just for certainty and and resource. So. Williamson County said, on the one hand, go to state court, then come back to federal court. But the no second bite at the apple rule says, go to state court, you can never go to federal court. So again, the bottom line from Williamson County is that although it wasn't intended to bar property owners from ever going to federal court, it had that effect. What the decision in Williamson County did was an abrupt change in the way Americans can bring their constitutional claims to court. Historically, constitutional claims go to federal courts. Everyone is theoretically supposed to have a right to bring a constitutional um, complaint in a federal court. The reason being that after the Civil War, Congress decided that state courts weren't reliable to protect civil rights including property rights. And this had to do with the emancipated slaves, the former slaves, and the fear that the states, the state courts were gonna hometown. And so Congress created a, a right to go into federal court when you have a constitutional claim. So for over 100 years, people, if you have a free speech claim or unreasonable seizure, search and seizure claim, and you think you're gonna get not gonna get a fair shake in state court, you can sue in federal court with a neutral, a more neutral um, adjudicator. Okay, so now go back to Williamson County. In 1985 in Williamson County, the Supreme Court said, no property owners, you're different. You can't go to a federal court. And so that stuck property owners in a state court system, which in the view of many, really limited because some states 
are less protective of property rights than other states. So the bottom line was that property owners under Williamson County, they're the only ones when they have a takings case that can't get protection in a federal court. And over time, what this did is that it dissuaded people from even bringing, even protecting their rights because feel like you're gonna lose in state court, you can't go to federal court, you just give up, you, you don't sue in the first place, or you, you try some other theory. Like instead of saying your property's been taken, you say, oh, your due process rights have been violated. So David explained what this did over time is it dissuaded people from protecting their own rights because if they felt like they were just going to automatically lose in state court, you know, and you can't go to federal court, you know, it's just not even worth it. Let me explain why it's so important, because sometimes when we talk about this issue, it seems sort of theoretical. Why does it matter? State court, federal court, you know, why does, you know, I care about my rights. What are my rights? And what about where I can go? And, and it's important to remember, again, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper unless somebody enforces it. So you can talk all about what your constitutional rights are, but if you can't get into a court to get those rights recognized, it's just a piece of paper. And so Williamson County and the Nick case is a case about court access. Court access is not something we focused on in other episodes, but it's an extremely important issue. We've said that going to court is costly, That alone presents an obstacle, sometimes an insurmountable one. Rosemary Nick took that burden on, only to find that the whole system was stacked against her anyway because of the Williamson County case from 1985. Well, she lost in a federal trial court, federal district court, said, Williamson County, sorry, Miss Nick. Basically, I think this, this, there's a problem here, but I can't do anything about it because Williamson County says you're supposed to go to state court. This is when David and PLF stepped in. She was losing and running out of money. And, you know, to take on the government um, for any civil rights claim, property rights or anything as a private citizen, is, it's just astronomical how much it costs. You know, the government has taxpayer-funded attorneys. They can say so sue us. And, and so you as a citizen, you're paying for their attorneys, essentially, and you got to hire your own attorney. Often what happens is after a year of litigation, property owners are running out of money and they're getting ready to give up. And that's one reason PLF exists and some other nonprofit on Beckett Fund. We exist to level the playing field so that so that people, individuals can continue that have good cases, can continue to fight them and don't just the government just doesn't wear them down because of money and they throw in the towel and that does happen. So I found, we found Rose after she started losing and and she um, was happy to have our help and wanted to continue fighting. And and we thought her case was good and it was emblematic of what is happening to other people. She was getting the runaround. So she went to the third circuit and appealed and said, court, you should construe, you should interpret Williamson County to let my case through. You should give me an exception basically. And the court said, no, Williamson County is Supreme Court law. Um, we think this ordinance is extraordinary and suspect. They were really felt it was a problem, but we can't do anything about it. Sorry, you should have been in state court. So Nick kept on fighting and we said, you know, we should ask the Supreme Court to change this Williamson County barrier to court access. So we took it to the Supreme Court in, um, in 2018 and, and the court granted the case. They, that's their discretion to grant it. They don't have to. They granted the case to review, to reconsider Williamson County court barrier to takings um, cases. 
If you've listened to other episodes or follow Supreme Court cases, you'll know that there are briefs filed by both parties in a case, as well as briefs submitted by other individuals or organizations. These are amicus briefs, also called friend of the court briefs. Beckett submitted a friend of the court brief in the Nick case because we noticed a concerning trend that developed after Williamson County, and it affected religious liberty cases. Williamson County was was fundamentally a case uh, about what it means for an unconstitutional taking to have occurred. But in the decades after the decision came down, sort of a strange thing started happening. Courts uh, started picking up those principles from the Williamson County case that you have to go through the local land use authorities and, and go through all the processes that they offer uh, and started applying them to other types of claims, including uh, claims under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, called uh, or ARLUPA for short. ARLUPA is a sister bill to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, which we've talked about in other episodes. ARLUPA was a federal statute passed by Congress that was designed to fix discrimination against houses of worship in local zoning decisions. Uh, Houses of worship like churches and synagogues and mosques are uh, sort of unpopular with local zoning authorities. Uh, Sometimes it's because of just pure hostility to religion or maybe hostility to a specific religion. And we see that often in the case of of Muslims who want to build mosques or uh, Orthodox Jews. And then sometimes it's it's from financial self-interest. I mean, houses of worship are tax exempt. uh, And so they, they supply less uh, property tax revenue to local governments. Uh, of course, these are all very short-sighted reasons to oppose houses of worship coming into an area because houses of worship are great for a community. They increase community cohesion. They uh, Congregations take care of the poor and the marginalized in, in communities. Uh, and so there's lots of reasons uh, that Congress would have wanted to say, hey, local authorities need to stop discriminating against houses of worship uh, and, and let them build. So courts started picking up uh, the Williamson County principles and applying them in cases brought by houses of worship under our lupa and saying, just like a person couldn't sue under the takings clause unless they uh, satisfied the hoops that Williamson County said that they had to jump through, uh, the same is true of people who, of, of churches and, and mosques and synagogues who are bringing claims under our lupa. And it, it was really out of place uh, in this context. I mean, Williamson County was about what makes a taking. Uh, our lupa is not about taking. Our lupa protects against discrimination again, against uh, substantial burdens being put on people of faith in their selection and and uh, and building of, of houses of worship. And so it's just a, it's a very different right that's being protected. And Williamson County was was very much out of place. If you recall, Joe explained that part of the Williamson County decision said that in order to bring a takings claim to federal court, you had to show that there was a final government decision for the federal court to evaluate. Williamson County had been uprooted from its native soil of, of takings cases and planted in the way of unwary Arlupa plaintiffs. And this really had some, some really bad effects on Arlupa claims. Like we were talking about earlier, houses of worship are already unpopular for local zoning authorities. And this really just gave them another tool uh, to use to discriminate against houses of worship who wanted to build in a particular area. So they could just drag out the process so long that uh, the house of worship would maybe just give up because often they're operating on shoestring budgets. They can't devote uh, years just to getting the proper clearances uh, in order to build in a particular place. You would see local zoning authorities that would say, 
Um, sure, you know, we've got this rule that would generally prohibit a church from operating in this particular spot, uh, but we'll consider an application for an exception. Uh, you just have to attach, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, assessments, traffic assessments, environmental assessments, all these things that would cost uh, tens of thousands of dollars to put together to hire the professionals to prepare uh, lots of lawyer time and, and lots of time in order to just get the application in front of them. Or they would say, the local zoning boards would say, uh, we'll have a hearing on whether we approve your building here. Uh, and then they would cancel the hearing and reschedule it for several months down, and they cancel it again and reschedule it again. Or they might, uh, sometimes they would pass a zoning law that was clearly intended to keep out this particular uh, religious group that was trying to build. And then they would say, well, we'd consider, you know, they would tell a court later, uh, we would consider an exception. They just had to ask court in the right way. And therefore, you should dismiss under Williamson County. So in all these different ways, it was, it was serving as a tool uh, to keep our loop of claims even from being heard on their merits just by making the process so burdensome on houses of worship that they would just give up. What's ironic is that Arlupa is meant to protect houses of worship against substantial burdens on their religious exercise. Yet here you have this process that is so time-intensive and so costly, it becomes this enormous burden. Any small house of worship, any little guy, is completely barred from pursuing their rights under the law. The application of the Williamson County standards to RELUPA cases has been a real problem. We're talking dozens of cases where that bad court precedent prevented our RELUPA cases from ever being heard. This is what Beckett's friend of the court brief explained in Rosemary Nick's case, which David argued. I thought it was helpful because it helped show, we haven't talked about it very much, but this Williamson County don't go to federal court rule for taking claimants had metastasized and grown and become this monster that where it started out just, and I put just being in quotes, just being these takings claims, they it grew to bar property owners from bringing RELUPA claims uh, or due process claims or property owners bringing equal protection claims. In other words, it, it started it becoming more of a monster than it even was. And, and in the end, it, in its worst manifestations, it was a bar property owners from federal court rule, not just a bar takings victims rule. That's what it was originally. Does that make sense? So I thought it was helpful for the Beckett Fund to, uh, to show that it, it was just expanding and becoming this this um, just this mean old dog swallowing every every property owner claim out there barring you uh, equal access to justice so the nick case went to the supreme court david bremer described the day of oral arguments standing in front of the justices you're standing very close to them when you argue the case, um, and they kind of they're like in a half circle in front of you, and it's sort of like an oral interrogation more than anything else. You get questions very fast from every direction, and as soon as you answer one, someone else has a question. Well, I felt good case about the case before I ever got there because I thought we were on the right side, and because I was all prayed up, frankly. So I, I mean, you read tea leaves at oral arguments, but that's you look for clues and hints, and sometimes. You count justices to see, well, how many seem favorable, but that's a very risky thing to do because they don't always rule for you the way it sounds at, at the oral argument. They go back in their chambers and they spend three months or four months writing an opinion and a lot can change in that time. So the confidence that I had was in the case. It's not, 
Oral argument is a important ritual in lawyering, and it helps the, the justices to, to test your theory and your argument orally, but it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It doesn't have the effect of the briefs. Most cases are won because of the writing, the briefing. They can go back and read it in their time and think about it. So in an oral argument, you, you don't have confidence in your case because of your oral argument. You have confidence in case because what's already been put before them, the nature of the case, the briefing, you know, and whether you think you're just on the right side or not. Um, so I was confident for those reasons. An oral argument didn't change that. And it kind of didn't, because in an unusual turn of events, the case had to be argued twice. How did this happen? Well, oral arguments were held on October 3rd, 2018. This was three days before Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed to the normally nine justice court, which meant that only eight justices heard the arguments in Nick. For some reason, and most people speculated that the justices may have been in a 4-4 deadlock over the Nick decision. The court asked to rehear oral arguments. So David went back and re-argued the case on January 16th, 2019. And then, as usual, the justices took a few months to issue their decision. On June 21st, 2019, the decision was announced 5-4 in favor of Rosemary Nick. Uh, it overruled Williamson County and said Williamson County is no longer good law. If you have a government, you think the government's taking your private property without paying for it, you can go to a federal court, just like the next person that thinks their First Amendment free speech or religious liberties have been valued. You property are no less than they are when it comes to protection of your rights. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court. He used a uh, sort of a colorful metaphor that that really uh, made this clear. He said, well, a bank robber could always give the loot back later after having robbed it, but that doesn't mean that he didn't rob the bank in the first place. And that analogy is sort of what's going on here. To recap, this was a case about property rights start to finish. And yet, because of this decision, houses of worship won't need to jump through unnecessary hoops, and local governments won't be able to forever delay decisions when it comes to houses of worship. So as you can see, the implications of this property case spread even into religious liberty cases. Which is why it's so essential to defend our rights from all sides. So this situation illustrates how uh, individual liberties are often uh, connected, and that's so just because of the nature of the way the law works. Uh, courts often take a principle that was articulated by a court in one scenario, and they draw analogies, and they apply it to uh, a different type of case that they think is similar. And you know, especially within the context of the Bill of Rights, which are all individual rights against the government, uh, they sort of together protect the sphere of individual liberty against government infringement, whether it's the federal government or the state government. And so often you see principles that are, are stated in one case that, that migrate to other cases, even in other rights. And so it's important to figure out uh, when that sort of analogy drawing is right and when it's wrong, uh, and when it's wrong to cut back on it and protect uh, the right that's an issue. Thank you to David Bremer and Joe Davis for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions and Jay Tibbetts. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. 
Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.